University of Colorado. Engineering is a higher calling, a service today to diverse communities that benefit society for generations to come. There are many avenues for engineering graduates, and today on See You on the Air, we're talking to Dr. David Mays, professor of civil engineering at the University of Colorado, Denver, who has assisted more than a thousand students onto their path. Thank you for joining us today. Right, Emily. Thanks for having me on board here. So, Dr. Mays, you've been at CU Denver since 2005. Approximately how many students have you taught and mentored over the years? Do you know? Since I started in 2005, I've had 32 master's and PhD students and probably about 1,000 students total. Um, Most of the students are the people who come to our classes, and most of those are undergraduates. But then there's probably about 20% of my students are in the graduate classes. And then there's the select few who have the opportunity or the burden of working with me. (laughs) And then I work with them through the end of their graduate degree program. And um, we've, we've discovered a lot of fun things working with students. Can you tell us what some of your students have gone on to do following graduation or, and or, you know, earning their graduate degree? Right. There's a wide variety of pathways. When I was an undergrad in civil engineering, someone described it as the alphabet soup plan. So you start off getting a Bachelor of Science in civil engineering, and then the first step towards professional licensure is to take the Fundamentals of Engineering exam, which we abbreviate FE. After four years of practice, you're eligible to take the professional engineering exam, which is a PE. So the alphabet soup is BS, FE, PE, BMW. (laughs) Nice. That's catchy. I've had many students do that traditional pathway, but engineering degrees are great preparation for anything. So students get into a lot of a lot of things. Um, For instance, I have one student who's now a full-time instructor in engineering technology at our sister institution of Metro State. Wonderful. And I've had two students who finished their engineering degrees and then went on to seminary to become preachers. Wow. Interesting. You really can do anything. That's exactly the point (laughs) I'm saying. Most people become professional engineers, which is a profession in service of public health, safety, and welfare. It's a higher calling. We're not only doing this for our own selves and our own organizations, but we're trying to serve people we haven't met. And in civil engineering, the stuff we build often is still in service 100 years from now. So the people benefiting from our work are people who haven't even been born yet. I love the way you just put that. What do you think sets CU Denver engineering graduates apart from graduates of other schools of engineering? I think there's two key things there. The first key idea is that we've recently reinvented ourselves as one of the first or possibly the first College of Engineering Design and Computing. There are many colleges of engineering around the country and around the world, but we're unique because we've integrated design and computing throughout our entire program. And that's resulted in some really creative revisions to our curriculum. Uh, For example, we have all of our students start off with an introduction to engineering class that gives them the big picture before we get into all the details. And we also start off all of our students doing some hands-on design and some creative work um, in partnership with a group called InWorks. People might not realize how engineering and painting and music have a lot in common because the, the common core element is creativity. And it's often the creative idea that really makes the good design. That's going to that's gonna catch on and be better. So it's very much an interdisciplinary approach, kind of. I'm not sure I'd call it interdisciplinary, but I'd say that within the framework of engineering, we've really tried to focus on and embrace 
the creative aspects and the computing aspects, particularly since we're moving into a world where there are more and more measurements. There's more and more data. And we hear people talk about the Internet of Things, which gives us an opportunity to optimize things and to make things adaptive. And so we're really trying to get ahead of that wave. So I'd say that's the first thing that makes us unique. The second thing that makes us unique, I think has been true since before I started at CU Denver, probably since its very founding as an independent campus in the 70s, which is that we have kind of a unique campus culture. People come to CU Denver from every walk of life and at every age. When I first started teaching, I was 31 years old, and I was probably three years older than my average undergrad and about the same age as my average graduate student. Um, now I'm 47. I'm a little older than most of my students now, <laughs> but not much. I right. still have a lot of students who are older than I am. Um, we have people who come to us after serving in the military. We have people who come to us after running their own business. I've had students with prior degrees in economics and philosophy who decide, you know, I'm ready to get an engineering degree. And because of that unique culture, people feel comfortable on our campus when they might not feel comfortable in a more traditional college campus where you start at 18 and you finish at 22. Until recently, we've never had dorms. We, we have a few now, including our very first residential space for first-year students, which is fantastic. But nevertheless, we're still very much a commuter campus. So our students are balancing families, they're balancing jobs, and they're pursuing their own dreams in their own way. And I think that makes us a unique campus. Um, I think this is also reflected in our diversity. We, we have a lot more diversity than many other colleges. And I think what you get from a CU Denver graduate is a person who has the same technical training as any other engineering college, but because of their culture, they're more likely to have some life experience that is incredibly helpful with all of the professional skills you need to be a good engineer. Listening to people, talking to people in a clear way, asking the right questions, and building relationships. All of that comes from living. It's hard to teach those things in a class, but it, people pick it up by living. And I think that makes CU Denver unique. I love that. And I, I, the CU Denver campus, the Auraria campus, is such a dynamic place. Well, one of your areas of research involves applying ideas from complex systems science to flow in porous media, aquifers, soils, and granular media filters. Can you please translate that for us lay people and tell us more about that? Right. I'm very happy to translate that <laughs> phrase off of my website. <laughs> uh, most people are familiar with soil. Uh, soil is a combination of mineral grains, and then there's spaces between the grains. And through that space, we have air, and we also have water. Um, and that's where the roots grow. That's where the earthworms travel. Um, and it's a complex mixture from a biological and chemical perspective. Um, and it's a very rich environment. All of the food you eat, whether you're a vegetarian or whether you eat meat, originally the cows ate grass that grew in soil. So soil is fundamental to, to life. And because it has some elements of being a solid, but then it has other elements where the fluid flow is really the key thing. Um, the thinking about that fluid flow process has been kind of the core area of my own research since I did my PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, finishing in 2005, two weeks before I started here. Wow. So that's a soil. An aquifer is a geologic structure that can store and convey a useful amount of groundwater. If you go deep enough anywhere in the world, you're going to hit saturated soils. 
shouldn't pay anybody to do water witching because if you go deep enough, you're always going to find water. Um, aquifers are a major part of the water balance. And here in Colorado, since 1969, we've managed aquifers in conjunction with our surface water. California only started doing that in the last few years. Um, so we've been way ahead of the curve that way. And groundwater provides generally a safe and reliable source of water um, that's resistant to pollution because it's deep underground. And also the soil itself acts like a filter. And then that brings me to granular media filters. Filters are one of the classical technologies in water treatment plants. We've been using these for over 100 years. And it's very simple. You flow the water through basically a sand bed and cleaner water comes out the bottom. So there's a couple of classical problems in flow and porous media that I work on, and many other people do too. There's an entire professional organization called the International Society for Porous Media. I'm a member. Um, <laughs> one of the areas I work on is clogging. If you have any kind of chemical reaction or a biological action or bubbles inside your soil or aquifer or your filter, it can clog things up and then the water won't flow. So I've studied that with some innovative techniques that we'll talk about in just a second. The other application is on getting reactions to take place. And that's important if you have a contaminated aquifer. Aquifers are generally clean, but when they do become contaminated, it's really hard to clean up. The metaphor I use is that really horrible sponge that your roommate leaves <laughs> next to the sink, and they never squeeze it out, and pretty soon it gets to be full of this disgusting, brown, slimy stuff. And it's really hard to clean it out. Soils are a little bit like that. Once they're contaminated, it's hard to clean up. But there's a multi-billion dollar industry called groundwater remediation where people work on this. And we use some innovative ideas from chaos theory to help us get those mixing reactions to run. So fractals, which we used to describe the clogging, and chaos are two aspects of this broad field called complex system science. And I suppose I describe that as systems where you get interesting patterns based on simple components. So it's been, it's been a fun exercise, which I think has some interesting and potentially useful applications to the water balance and environmental quality. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time to translate that a little bit for us. But in general, how, how clean is the soil and our aquifers and our waterways in Colorado? On the one hand, we're pretty clean. Okay. Colorado is considered a headwater state, which means we're at the top of the watershed. Almost every river that crosses the Colorado border is flowing from Colorado to a neighboring state. Um, and because we're a headwater state, we have pretty good water quality. For example, Denver Water has a protected watershed up in the Rockies, and they provide really good quality water compared to what you get in most major American cities. Although, I'll mention as a side comment, New York City also has a protected watershed, and they have some of the best tap water anywhere in the country, which is probably not the first place that comes to mind when you think of great water. But it really comes down to being at the top of the watershed. Okay. The farther you go down, the more likely you are to be using recycled water. And although we have great technology to do that, it's better to start clean. That makes sense. So in that sense, we're, we're doing pretty well. On the other hand, we have our share of Superfund sites here from military sites, industrial sites, and some of the historic mines that characterized so much of our industry in the 19th century. Got it. Well, your team did a study in 2015 that found that natural gas leaks can be just as detrimental to the environment as coal. Can you elaborate on that a bit and tell us how big of a problem this is? Right. So I should clarify, just to be specific, 
That study only focused on the generation of electricity and it only focused on greenhouse gas emissions. So we weren't looking at vehicular emissions, for example, and we weren't looking at any other environmental impacts besides greenhouse gas emissions. Greenhouse gas emissions are most commonly carbon dioxide, which is kind of the, the thing that we usually think about when we think about our impact and how much are we triggering climate change. But there are many other atmospheric components that can contribute to that. One of those is methane. Methane is the major component in natural gas. So here's where the story gets interesting. Um, it's pretty well known that coal produces a pretty good amount of greenhouse gases for each kilowatt hour of electricity that you generate. And a kilowatt hour is the unit of electricity that you might see on your meter at home. You've got these dials that spin around at different speeds. Those are measuring kilowatt hours. But even since I've come to Colorado, when I first came, we were more than 50% coal was where we generated our electricity. That's approximately 25% now. It's gone down a lot. And if you watch the trains rolling through Denver, there are far fewer coal trains rolling past what's now called the ball arena <laughs> that we used to have. We used yeah. to have a lot more coal trains. Mm -hmm. Most of that change has been because there's been some technological advances in natural gas, particularly directional drilling and hydraulic fracturing that have really allowed us to develop those resources more. And in an ideal world, if you burn natural gas, you get about half as much carbon footprint compared to burning coal to generate electricity. But we're not in an ideal world. And as long as there's even a small leak, that pure methane leaking out into the environment can do a whole bunch of damage because methane is much more damaging than carbon dioxide right. for greenhouse gases. So what we found was that if you leak depending on the time frame, 5 to 10% of your natural gas, then you have about the same environmental impact, greenhouse gas impact, as burning coal. So what that told us was that it's really important to regulate emissions if we want natural gas to be a bridge fuel as we transition over to wind, solar, photovoltaic, hydropower, other things that are greener. Since that study, have there been steps to, to mitigate this problem? It's been a mixed bag. Okay. So on the one hand, there's an industry association called the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, COGA. And their website has a description of the various regulations that Colorado has put in place to regulate oil and gas. Many of those are really leading the country in terms of regulating methane emissions from leakage. So that's, that's a high point. There's been a recognition that leakage is something that we need to manage. Um, on the other hand, the environmental group, EDF, Environmental Defense Fund, reported concerns that under the previous President Trump's administration, there had been some deregulation of some of the leakage regulations that were in place previously. So like many things, there's, there's some progress and then there's some, um, there's some different perspectives on what's the appropriate amount of regulation. Sure. Well, jumping back to water and soil for just a second, can you talk a little bit about how this summer's wildfires and wildfires in general, how those impact water and soil in scarred and burn areas? You can talk about Colorado specifically or just in general. Wildfires have always been part of the environment. Um, since the beginning of time, fire is a natural part of the natural climate in North America. However, after about 100 years of suppressing wildfires and exacerbated by the climate change, which is generally making things hotter and drier, um, what we've seen is some really unprecedented fires. It's analogous to building a dam. 
a dam will regulate the floods, but if the dam ever breaks, the resulting flood could be much worse than what you would have had if you left the stream alone. So wildfires have a tendency to destroy vegetation. That vegetation promotes the infiltration of water. So if you have a rainfall event where you get one inch of rainfall, let's say 75% of that would normally infiltrate into the soil and 25% would turn into runoff and that would feed the streams. That's why we have brown water and flooding after, after rainfall events. Um, after a wildfire, maybe you only get 50% of the water going down into the soil, which means you now have 50% of the water turning into runoff. That's twice as much runoff. And because you've destroyed the vegetation, you also have less resistance to erosion. So you tend to get more erosion than before. And then that has a detrimental effect on the health of the streams in the mountains. So um, it's pretty well known that there's major impacts from wildfires over to hydrology. And what I'm hopeful for is that we'll learn to follow the, the example that many of the indigenous people gave us prior to European colonization, which is to do prescribed fires. Um, prescribed fires can provide a lot of benefit to the environment. And if we're careful, we can do that without causing a lot of damage to property and, and, and safety. You have received millions of dollars in grants for your research, including from the U.S. National Science Foundation, the Department of Energy, and the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, plus even more from collaborators. Can you tell us about one or two of your more notable projects and their outcomes? Sure. Let me talk about two, both of which are funded by the U.S. National Science Foundation. The first one is a collaboration with my colleague, Professor Rosanna Newpower, who works at CU Boulder. Um, she and I are both groundwater hydrologists, and we've shared an interest in applying ideas from chaos theory to improve mixing. And we've had a couple of grants from the Hydrologic Sciences Program at the National Science Foundation, where we've used the ideas that other people have published on how to come up with these clever chaotic flows to promote better plume spreading, and that promotes better mixing so that we can do better groundwater cleanup. And our part of that has been, I would say, more oriented around a design perspective where we say, what can we do with these flows and can we implement these in the context of an aquifer? And it's been really gratifying to see more people picking up these ideas at universities around the world and starting to publish with some of the same ideas. Um, I can't take all the credit for that because some of these ideas have also been developed by another group in Australia. Um, they're all fantastic people down there and we get along really well. And it's also nice to know we're not alone. So that's, that's been one really good collaboration that I look forward to continuing, particularly with extrapolating from what we've done with computer simulations and in laboratory experiments into field testing in collaboration with people who do the field testing in real field sites. That is not a trivial step. Going from university to real life is a big step, and we're looking forward to taking that step next. Wonderful. The second grant I'd like to talk about is also from the U.S. National Science Foundation, and it's a program called Environmental Stewardship of Indigenous Lands. The purpose of this program is to train engineers and scientists to liaison on environmental issues between tribal and non-tribal organizations. This is a need that has been identified by my colleague, Professor Timberly Roan, who's a microbiologist here at CU Denver. And in talking to a lot of her partners in government agencies and at tribes, it became clear that what we need are scientists and engineers who understand 
sovereignty, who understand some of the relevant history, who understand some of the unique regulatory frameworks that relate to working with First Nations here in, in North America. And so we invented this program, and we've been developing it over the last few years. Um, it's open to anyone who's interested in working with Indigenous communities, so anybody can join. And we've had a nice variety of people. Having said that, we've also really strive to make it a safe space for Indigenous students. It's important to have a place where people feel like their perspective is valued and their attitudes are taken seriously. Because we've come to recognize how much engineering depends on culture. Uh, and that's something that we'll maybe get back to later in the talk. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that's been a great program. Um, and I, I understand that this is like the first of its kind, this program. I think if you define it in the exact way I did, it is yes. the first of its kind. <laughs> okay. There are many programs that are striving to make a better connection between science, engineering, and indigenous communities. Okay. And I think we've, we've learned a lot moving forward. One thing we've learned is that it's invaluable to have external partners, um, indigenous professionals working in tribes and also in government agencies. Their perspective has informed our program in a way that I don't think we would ever get strictly by reviewing the the refereed literature. But something that was a little bit of a surprise to me is how much we've also learned from working with our students. Our students have really helped us see what's important to be a student and to be an indigenous person and have helped us to understand that there's, there's often conflict between those two parts of a person's identity. And so the program has become much more student-oriented than I think we envisioned when we first wrote the first grant proposals, golly, about four years ago. Okay. So it's been a nice demonstration of how programs can and probably should evolve based on the continuous feedback we get from our, our internal and external constituents. This is a great segue into something else I wanted to ask you about. You've been a very vocal activist for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the engineering education space. Can you tell us what some of the obstacles are for underrepresented communities, underrepresented students, particularly in engineering, and what is being done within the College of Engineering to promote DEI? Those are great questions. My starting point is that engineering is an opportunity for common ground. In a world where so many things are pulling us apart, we can get together and we can use the same mathematics and the same basic science to do some beautiful designs that will be in service of humanity. And that's a goal that can take place in any community in the United States or around the world. Having said that, the experience of being an engineering student is often different depending on the person's background. And we've learned as we've done the work with environmental stewardship of indigenous lands and some other training that I've participated in as a participant myself, that there's something called a hidden curriculum. There's the external curriculum of here's all the things we want you to learn, and here's what will be on the FE exam, Fundamentals of Engineering. And it is our job to prepare people to do those things. But along with that, there can be this hidden curriculum of all these other things that nobody ever tells students they need to know. How do you register for classes? How do you strike up a relationship with your financial aid advisor? How do you network prior to looking for an internship? Why is it important to get an internship before you get a job? So many of us get our first job through some kind of personal connection. So if you're already, if you're already in the system, if you come from a family that's connected, there's a lot of little things that add up to paving the way. For many 
first-generation students and students from families who have not participated in college for one reason or another, these things can be obstacles. And there's also a cultural dimension to what we do in engineering. On the one hand, most of us engineering faculty think that what we teach is really objective. And it's the same material anywhere in the world. And on the one hand, that is true. But on the other hand, what we do with that information absolutely depends on culture. But very few of us engineering faculty have any training in culture. Most of us were trained to be suspicious of people thinking about sociology or anthropology. We felt like they're not really rigorous, defensible, repeatable disciplines. Uh, but the longer I work in this, the more I realize that culture is so fundamental to everything we do. And that culture can make some people feel welcome and other people feel unwelcome. And in my view, that's the, the biggest challenge. I think there's very few people who have outright racism or sexism in universities these days. There could be some. But I think what happens more often is that there's a whole portfolio of little things that can make people feel welcome or unwelcome. And identifying that and then starting to cultivate awareness, in my view, is our next step. Uh, there are many steps, but one step that we're working on is a new program that's called Engineering is Not Neutral, Transforming Instruction by Collaboration and Engagement. And that spells entice. So our challenge is to entice the incumbent engineering faculty to take a look at themselves and think about what have I been through and what kind of experiences have I had? How often are those experiences the same as the experiences of my students? And the answer is not always. Um, in particular, if you're an engineering student who ultimately became an engineering professor, you're on the fringes, folks. You're not a regular engineering student. If we only aim ourselves at other people who are going to become engineering professors, we're missing a huge opportunity because engineering is much, much bigger than just the stuff we do in universities. So we'll start by looking at ourselves and then we'll start looking at our classes. What can we do to make the classes work for all students? And the great news here is that it's a win-win. There are known techniques available to make education more welcoming for all students from any background. So it's a win-win. We're not talking about re-slicing the pie. We're talking about growing a bigger pie by working on diversity in universities. And then the third year is building community. The experience of being a college student is not just an endless series of homework assignments and midterm exams. Well, definitely give our students both. <laughs> but there's a feeling of community that you get. And when students feel that sense of community and the sense of belonging, they thrive and they do well and they go on to do great things. And we need to make sure that our community works for all the students. And by the way, the framework we're using comes from the Colorado Commission for Higher Education Equity Toolkit. They have an online set of resources that anyone can access. And it provides curated focused resources for faculty and also K through 12 teachers um, who are interested in doing better with regard to outreach and inclusion. So we're looking forward to getting that project up and running. We just started last month. We're meeting today on the territory that's the traditional land of the Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho people and about 45 other First Nations. Um, I think that universities have begun to recognize the importance of land acknowledgement um, as my colleague Glenn Morris pointed out, it's not just land acknowledgement, but also people acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. uh, people have been living in what is now Colorado since time immemorial. And we carry on many of their traditions. Absolutely. And I think CU took a 
good step just last year. It was a probably a long overdue step in creating the university's first lands acknowledgement statement, which other organizations are continuing or are doing as well. So that was a positive step for the university to um, create that statement. Right. I agree. I mean, I think there's steps in the right direction. I would add that maybe even more important than that is that the University of Colorado, and I believe every other Colorado state institution is now offering in-state tuition to people from any of the original First Nations that now is called Colorado. Right. And I think that's an important gesture of welcome home. I agree. That's really wonderful. How did you become interested in this aspect of education and or aware of it? I mean, if I can ask that, because not everybody is. Right. That's a great question. My first job when I finished my engineering degree from the University of Pennsylvania was with Teach for America. Teach for America is a nonprofit organization founded in the 1990s by Wendy Kopp, who realized that we have a lot of public schools in America that need teachers. There's so much staff turnover for a variety of reasons. Meanwhile, we have a lot of people graduating from college who did not major in education, but they really want to contribute to society and they want to make a difference. And they're looking for a vocation. What am I going to do? This is such a common feeling for so many people graduating from college, including me. So I became aware of Teach for America and I'd previously enjoyed working as a tutor everywhere from first grade reading up to high school chemistry. So I thought, you know, that's really interesting. I'm going to give that a shot. So I applied and I was accepted and I got a job teaching drafting and technology to different classes in a high school in a small town in Louisiana, which is a fantastic place to live. I recommend it to anybody. They have a festival every weekend. (laughs) There are so many delicious Cajun foods. Your life isn't really complete until you spend some time in South Louisiana. Okay, good. So I spent a year... um, as a high school teacher. And what I got out of that was some success. Some of my students felt like they learned in my class. My other students really challenged me. And it was a personal challenge because I'd never dealt with that much conflict before. But I had the feeling when I moved on from teaching high school to my original career path in civil engineering, that I had been answering the right question. And a bad answer to the right question is better than a great answer to the wrong question. Um, And this got me thinking as I began teaching here at CU Denver, that there's an opportunity for us to reach out, uh, particularly at a public school like CU Denver. Our mission is to serve the people of Colorado from every walk of life, every income level, and to be dynamic and change along with the changing population of the state. And it became clear that we could really do better. And we've read this in the, in the literature, and we've also heard this from our own students. By running a series of focus groups in the 2020-2021 year, we've heard from some of our students that they don't always feel like they belong. And that's something that's a problem because engineering should be available for anybody who wants to do it. I don't own engineering. Mm -hmm. You don't own engineering either. Mm -hmm. It belongs to all of us. And that's an opportunity to do things better. Well, I understand that Hundreds of students have benefited from your mentorship through Teach for America. Are you still involved with this organization? I'm a Teach for America alumnus. Uh, I haven't been formally involved with Teach for America since I left the program in the in the mid-90s. Okay. But I would say many people who work in Teach for America go on to become K-12 teachers as their career. Some of us go on to get a PhD and become university faculty. 
Uh, some of us get into politics. But I think I can say anybody who's been through Teach for America has gained an enormous amount of respect for public school teachers and has gained the tools and the perspective they need to be an advocate for better education at every level. And as a side comment, a couple of years ago, one of my former students from Louisiana tracked me down and called me up on the phone. And this student was not one of the troublemakers. But I will say that this student's hand drawings encapsulated the stress I was feeling <laughs> as a first-year public school teacher. Um, I, was a, I was struggling as a first-year teacher, but I was really delighted to find out that he had married his high school sweetheart that he met when I was the teacher and had later gone on to become a teacher himself and had paid back some of my effort by reciprocating the favor. And that was really delightful to hear. That must have been very rewarding for you. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I think probably every Teach for America person has some stories like that. Um, so I'd say that gives me a perspective that may be a little different from other engineering faculty whose training is so technical. The thing they always tell us is that you learn more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. <laughs> and that is a pretty apt description for a lot of technical PhDs, right. including my own. I got to be the world's expert in a very defined niche of flow and porous media. Extrapolating from that to the bigger pictures of what matters for students, what matters for society, and how does, how does this all fit together is a, not a trivial task. And I think most of us grow into this. As you go from a junior faculty to mid-level to more senior, many engineering faculty start to see the bigger picture and get involved in non-technical activities in addition to their technical activities. And I think it's important. I think it's worthwhile. I think it's very important. Absolutely. Well, how do you see the field of civil engineering evolving? And or how do you hope it continues to evolve? That's a great question. I would say civil engineering in the 19th century was considered uh, the primary tool with which we will tame nature. In the Bible, we read about the great flood. Civil engineers came along and invented dams. And now we don't fear floods the way we used to. We also don't fear droughts the way we used to. We've got air conditioning. We've got water supply. Anybody who's been backpacking appreciates tap water because it's so hard to filter water when you're being visited by a million mosquitoes in Yosemite National Park. We take all these things for granted, but the traditional perspective was that civil engineers are laying out the foundation for society so that everybody else can do what they want. And all of the social and economic intercourse of civilization depends on what we do. So there was a lot of deference to civil engineers. If a civil engineer said, we're going to do X, everybody else would get in line. And sometimes the choices we made had unintended social consequences. Um, so for example, uh, we built the interstate highway system, which absolutely tied our country together and promoted a lot of commerce. But those same interstate highways often divided neighborhoods. And we've seen that right here in Denver with the construction of Interstate 70. Another example is we recognized that we needed to drain swamps to manage malaria. So we put in a lot of hydraulic infrastructure in the Everglades in Florida. And what we've come to realize over time, and I think this is a really positive development, is that the technical questions are not the only important questions. We do have to get those right. We do have to protect people from floods. That is true. But it's not sufficient to get all the technical questions right. 
Civil engineers also need to learn how to engage with communities and to think about what's going to be good for the environment in the long run, um, rather than focusing entirely on what we might call economic benefits. And so right there, we've got the three legs of a stool that we call sustainability. You've got to have the economic benefit, you've got to have an environmental benefit, and you need to have a social benefit. And if we have those three legs on the stool, the stool will stand up. So I'd say that during the time I've been a civil engineer since the 1990s, the profession has moved in this direction. And although it does make projects slower, in, in my view, in the long run, it's the fastest and easiest way to do things. My grandfather told me, he was a banker in Ireland, that in the long run, the right way to do anything is the easiest way. Right. Wise words. Very good. Well, what's one thing you'd like our listeners to take away, one or two things that you'd like our listeners to take away from our discussion today? I would say the one takeaway I'd like people to keep is that engineering is a creative profession. It's a creative activity. It's more like music or architecture than people might realize. And because it is based on creativity, there's a lot of space here for people with different points of view and different backgrounds. And I think that celebrating the creative core of engineering is a good way to invite people to come and join us. So come on board. Let's go design some great stuff together. I love that. Well, thank you so much. Dr. Mays, for being here with us today. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Same, it has. Thank you so much, and thank you for all that you do for CU and our students. Thank you, Dr. Mays, and thank you to our listeners for joining us today. CU on the Air is hosted by Emily Davies, produced by Kathy Buten, and recorded and engineered by me, John Arnold. Email us your questions and suggestions at ontheair at cu.edu. We'll see you on the air next time. University of Colorado.